It's referred to as the People's Palace. The New York Public Library's main branch on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan is celebrating its centennial this year, but the library is far from showing its age. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A hundred years after its construction, the New York Public Library's flagship building is as magnificent as ever. Coming up, we'll talk with a co-author of a book that explores the library's architecture and decoration. The Gottesman Exhibition Hall uh, on the first floor of the library is a stupendous space. It has a ceiling that is perhaps as good as, if not better than, any other ceiling to be found in the United States. And it's a room that's thrilling to be in. The main branch of the New York Public Library is officially known as the Stephen A. Schwarzman Building. The library is celebrating its 100th anniversary with an exhibit that puts some of its prize holdings on display. Cityscape's Andrea McCreary recently checked it out. My name is Thomas Mellons, and I was the guest curator for the New York Public Library Centennial Exhibition. It's been 100 years since this library's been opened. So how did it all begin? The New York Public Library's Stephen A. Schwartzman Building, where we are standing right now, opened on May 23, 1911. So it's now celebrating its 100th anniversary. But the library actually predates the completion of this building. The library came to be in 1895. There had been other public libraries in New York, but none on the scale of the New York Public Library as we know it today, and none that were so easily accessible. They were public libraries, but they were still hard to access. There were three institutions that specifically came together to form the New York Public Library. The Lenox Library stood where the Frick Museum stands today, the Astor Library, and that building still stands and now serves as the public theater on Lafayette Street, and the Tilden Trust, which had been established by Samuel Tilden, a former governor of New York State. And these three institutions came together in 1895, but it wasn't really until 1911 that there was a central facility that could house the remarkable research collections that constitute the library. Do you have any idea what the first book that was requested at this library was? The first book that was handed to a uh, user here at the library here on May 24th, the day after the official opening, but when it was open to the public, was a Russian language book, and it was the philosophy of Nietzsche and Tolstoy, and it was requested by a Russian immigrant, and that actually speaks volumes about this institution and about this city. It was not accidental or it was not insignificant that the first person to receive a book here was not a native English speaker, was an immigrant to this city and to this country, and the idea of the public library really was to be a kind of free, democratic, public, almost university for the people. And the fact that an immigrant was the first person to use a book, to me, actually expresses the mission of the library in a very moving way. The collection started off with two different libraries merging together. So do you know how big that collection was? There were over a million items in the collection on opening day. There are now, it's estimated, over 60 million items, and this is just in the research collections. That is not the circulating branches, but there are 60 million items. I will tell you that when I was first hired to curate this exhibition, I was, of course, very excited and looking forward to this 
And I was told that about 250 objects were likely to fit into this gallery space comfortably. Uh, and I thought, that's fine. I've curated exhibitions with fewer objects and with a greater number of objects. And then I was told that I could choose from amongst 60 million, in, in excess of 60 million. And I thought, oh my goodness, where, how do you do that? I can do a lot of things, but how do you do that? So what was your goal in putting together this exhibition? What did you want people to take from it or see or understand about the library? The library has collected everything. The idea is that, in a sense, these collections serve as a kind of metaphor for the mind. And everything that you and I and everyone else have ever thought or ever felt is in some way expressed in these collections. And by extension, that these collections then serve as a kind of substrate, as a kind of foundation for every thought that you and I and everybody else will have in the future. And that includes incredibly inspiring ideas, that includes incredibly dark ideas, good, evil, beauty, ugliness, everything is here. And that's what I wanted to express. We're actually standing in part of the exhibit right now. So where are we? In this gallery, in the Wackenheim Gallery, in addition to items that are drawn from the collection and that talk about the history of the library and the building, there is, as you can see right here, a large illuminated table running down the center of the space that contains a uh, hundred books. And these 100 books were either written here in the library or grew directly out of research that happened in the library. This particular room that we're in, this beautiful marble-clad room, has, over the course of the last 100 years, served a number of purposes. It was originally the formal reception room for people who were coming to visit the president of the library. Rather, rather grand, a rather grand, grand place to wait. And then it subsequently served as the Allen Writer's Room, and writers would come and actually work in this very room, no doubt using typewriters, a technology that is completely obscure to my 14-year-old son. And one of the people who sat here and, and worked was Betty Friedan, who actually wrote The Feminine Mystique in this room. So I thought that was really pretty terrific, and that is, of course, one of the 100 books on display. All right, and there's still so much more to go, so will you take me around? Please, my pleasure. We are now at the entrance to the Gottesman Exhibition Hall. The exhibition is uh, divided into four sections, into observation, contemplation, creativity, and society. Every item that you see in this gallery is drawn from the collections. There's nothing that's borrowed from outside the library. But before we even get to those four sections, I did decide to pull out a few items from the collections that I thought demonstrated key moments throughout the history of mankind that reflect the way information has been collected and preserved and disseminated. And the very first thing that you see, the very first case in this specially designed case, is a grid of cuneiforms. And these are very small tablets that you can hold in the palm of your hand that incorporate some of the earliest known writing. People have been on the planet, people argue about how long human beings have been recognized as ourselves, but it's certainly hundreds of thousands of years. Writing is a relatively new invention, and that may be surprising to people. It's only 5,000 years old, or so we believe. And these are some of the earliest known examples of writing. The next item on display after the cuneiforms is a Gutenberg Bible. This copy of the Gutenberg Bible, which of course is the first time that movable type is used in the European world. There had been examples of movable type earlier in China, but this is the first in the European world, and it sparks a revolution which 
changed the world, which continues to this day. I'd also like to note there's a lot of people here looking around this exhibit. Well, I, I have to tell you there are a lot of people looking at today, and that's been very gratifying. The, the response has been very, very strong. I believe that in the first month, more than 50,000 people came here to the library to see these treasures, and that was really, uh, as I say, very rewarding. Uh, we can walk over, and, and I can show you. One of my very favorite objects in the show is uh, this handwritten score by uh, Beethoven, written in uh, 1811 of the Archduke Trio, and I think it's just remarkably expressive. You can see something about, in, in, in all this very sort of impassioned jumble writing, you can see something about his creative process, but if you turn and look over your right shoulder, you see the Beatles cards, and so it's everything from Beethoven to the Beatles. I have been asked frequently what my favorite object in the exhibition is, and as I can't really narrow it down to one, but I think I could probably answer what do I think is the creepiest object in the show, and we're standing right in front of it, and that is uh, Charles Dickens was apparently a great uh, cat lover, and he was particularly devoted to his cat Bob, and he was so devoted that after Bob uh, died, the, after the cat died, he had the cat's paw made into a uh, letter opener, whether this was supposed to be an expression of his affection or not, I, it's a little hard for me to know, but uh, it, it certainly is, is uh, odd, and uh, I think one could uh, safely say it's Dickensian. I have uh, arranged the material as a series of contrasts, but in a sense it's also an invitation to the viewer to create your own pairs, your own contrasts, your own juxtapositions, your own exhibitions in your own mind. All right, Thomas, thank you so much for showing me around. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That was Cityscape's Andrew McCurry talking with Thomas Mellens, the guest curator for the Celebrating 100 Years exhibit at the New York Public Library. It's on display through December 31st. The New York Public Library is an old institution, but despite its age, the library has managed to keep up with the changing times. In fact, Alexis Madrigal, a senior editor at The Atlantic, says big media can learn a lot from the 100-year-old institution. He recently penned an article about how the library is, quote, flourishing and putting out some of the most innovative online projects in the country. Alexis, thanks for joining us. Oh, hey, thanks for having me on. You recently penned an article called What Big Media Can Learn from the New York Public Library. I'm sure there are at least some people who would be surprised that a library could teach big media anything, or at least very little. Were you one of those people before writing this article? Well, you know, actually, I had been tracking the New York Public Library's efforts for a while. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that basically every organization now is a media company. I mean, everybody has a website. Everybody is putting out information that can be consumed directly by the public. Uh, the lack of sort of intermediaries between organizations and, and people looking for information means that basically every single organization in the world has to deal with the fact that they are making things that look a lot like magazines, that look a lot like content. A library simply just cannot be a place where people go in and check out books anymore, bottom line. I mean, a library will also be that, but layered on top of it will be all these other things. It will be how people discover what the library has, how people discover how to use a library. All of those types of things require content, require media making. What are among the more interesting things the New York Public Library is doing online? The very first thing to talk about would be uh, Biblion uh, or, or Biblion. Uh, I'm still not exactly sure how you pronounce it, but it's an iPad app that was created to 
expose some of the research collections that the New York Public Library has, which are not available to the public, generally speaking. So it's actually about the 1939 World Fair. I think it sort of much more closely mimics the experience of moving through a museum or a library, like in space, than uh, it mimics, say, a magazine where the sort of unit of measure is the page. The library also has some pretty neat crowdsourcing projects, doesn't it? Yeah, they're amazing, actually. Well, probably the best one, best crowdsourcing project that I've seen for uh, an archive is their, new, their public library menu project. They have this really amazing collection of menus from the city of New York, and they don't know what's uh, written on them. <laughs> they have a picture of them, right, but they don't have the actual text, so you can't, like, search through it uh, using a search engine. And the problem is that, like, for a lot of documents, right, you can sort of scan them and then you run them through optical character recognition, OCR, which uh, transforms... The, the photo into text. But a lot of these menus are handwritten or the fonts are really crazy because they're like 18, from 1850. And so really the only solution is to have human beings type the menus. And so they've created a very slick interface that allows you to you can pull out the new menu and type like individual dishes. And then they've tied all of that data that you're creating by typing all that stuff to the rest of the internet. So if you find some crazy old recipe sitting on an old menu, you can then click on it and find like recipes from around the internet that would allow you to make that crazy old dish. So it's actually it's both like fascinating on how information goes into the system and on how that information is tied to the rest of the outside world. We often hear about libraries facing massive budget cuts. How is it that the New York Public Library is able to do so much online in this economic climate? A lot of these digital projects have like tiny little budgets, right? because they're able to tap into the, the crowd, because they're able to make, like, smart partnerships. They're not actually that expensive, so the kind of bang for the buck is quite high. So most of the New York Public Library has a bunch of different revenue sources, right? Like, they're not just looking at public money. They're actually bringing in private stuff, and some of that private stuff can be earmarked or directed to this specific type of project. Is the New York Public Library much more advanced than other library systems nationwide, would you say? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple shining examples. I mean, the Library of Congress is, you know, a big boat, but they have a lot of really interesting and um, projects like spinning out. The Brooklyn Public Library is good, but I think the New York Public Library is the best that I've seen, uh, particularly given that this isn't just like one initiative that's doing well. This is like sort of a metastasized creativity that's sort of starting to permeate the New York Public Library. And I think that's what's really exciting about it and what the lesson for media companies is, too, right? That essentially if you allow people within your organization who are already creative and love what they do, they're going to come up with lots of cool stuff. But you have to sort of release them to go do that. That's what's really exciting about the New York Public Library model, that it's a lot of people doing really interesting stuff, not just some special innovation department that's coming up with everything. Two marble lions stand guard outside the New York Public Library's flagship building on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue, and the library has found a way to bring the lion to its online presence as well, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so they were, they're called Patience and Fortitude, and they're the symbols of the library, really, and, like, incredibly recognizable. But now they've become the sort of brand of the library, right? And I think what's interesting about that is it's just, like, 
you know, many, many more people are going to see the lion as sort of a branding icon than are actually going to see the lion in real space. And I think that's an indication of, sort of what's happening with all brick-and-mortar organizations, right, or places that had thought of themselves as being grounded in buildings and in geographical space. I mean, how you transfer those, like, symbols of your organization online becomes incredibly important because the sign of how well your organization as a whole is transferring online. All right, Alexis, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Alexis Madrigal is a senior editor at The Atlantic. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. This morning, we're exploring the New York Public Library, including the grandeur of its main branch on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, a place referred to as the People's Palace. Francis Moroni is the co-author of a book called The New York Public Library, The Architecture and Decoration of the Stephen A. Schwarzman Building. He's with us now in the studio. Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. What was your impression of the New York Public Library, the main building on Fifth Avenue, when you first laid eyes on it? Well, I first laid eyes on it a long time ago. I'm not a native New Yorker, but I first saw it probably 35 years ago or so, and I was deeply impressed by it. It's one of the great monumental buildings of America, but it's also a building that the more time you spend in it and the closer you look at it, the more amazing, the more impressive it is. Here we are a hundred years after the construction of that library. Has it changed much on the inside or even on the outside? Yes and no. Uh, You know, the decorative detail of the building, which is you know, what makes it the great work of art that it is, has not changed much. Um, However, almost all of the rooms inside, uh, in the time that I have known the library, let alone in the last hundred years, uh, have been repurposed. And of course, in recent years, the library has undergone a massive restoration and renovation so that the building people knew 35 years ago looks very different today. It looks so much better today than it did then. Do you have a favorite room in the library? That's something that varies day by day. Because of what I do for a living, people are always asking me, do I have a favorite building in New York? And I used to give different answers to that question all the time until I spent a summer practically living in the New York Public Library. And now that's the best building in New York, bar none. But your question, do I have a favorite room? That will change day by day. But the Goddessman Exhibition Hall uh, on the first floor of the library is a stupendous space. It has a ceiling that is perhaps as good as, if not better than, any other ceiling to be found in the United States. And it's a room that's thrilling to be in. But what's more, I love to go in there and just watch the people, because people who are unschooled in architecture nonetheless just respond to that room with dropped jaws. And I just love watching that reaction. Are your eyes automatically drawn up to that ceiling? They are. 
you know, absolutely. The ceiling is this amazingly richly carved wooden ceiling that the best artisans of the time worked on. And it reminds us, first of all, that ceilings are extremely important in architecture. There seems to have been a point in the 20th century where architects started to neglect ceilings to the detriment of rooms in general. But yeah, your eye is drawn right up to it. And, you know, even if you don't know anything about the arts of decoration. You still study that detail very closely. It's just an amazing thing. The building itself is in the classical style, right? Yes, everything about it is classical. Uh, The architects of the building, John Mervyn Carrere and Thomas Hastings, were trained in Paris, as were many of the leading U.S. architects of that time, at a school called the École des Beaux-Arts, where they learned all the time-honored principles of classical architecture drawn from ancient Greece and Rome and from um, the Italy of the Renaissance, uh, so that their classicism isn't drawn from any one particular time or place. Rather, it was sort of this, this language that they learned and then were able to do amazing things with. Classical artists often draw on the animal kingdom, right? So here in the library, we see animals all over the place. Yeah, there are animals all over the place. There is also the human form all over the place, but the animals, absolutely. There are lion heads and lion paws, and there are ram ram's heads. There are these things called bucranes, which actually comes from uh, the Greek for ox cranium, and those are to be found all over, and dolphins are to be found all over and birds, and there's just this wonderful menagerie of animals rendered in stone and bronze and wood, which can make the library a delightful place to bring children. Let's take a step back outside the library, if you will. Here we are on Fifth Avenue facing the library, looking at that facade. Now, I didn't realize, because I'm not familiar with all of the words and phrases in classical architecture, that the attic is actually part of the facade. When I hear attic, I think upstairs in a house. Sure. <laughs> no, the attic is, is part of the facade. And one of the things that we uh, do with the book is we really try to identify uh, all of the different parts of the building. We do, in the book, in fact, describe and label every single piece of ornament no matter how small, to be found in the library. And the reason for doing this is uh, not because we think you can't appreciate it if you don't know what it's called, but by putting the name to it, it lets people know that these weren't simply arbitrary things that you know the architects came up with, that they were actually working with time-honored forms and devices that had names, that uh, had rules that applied to them, that had been developed or evolved over 2,000 years. Now, On the outside of the building, what is, I think, so amazing about the library is that it's set upon a terrace. Uh, And what this does is it kind of lifts the building up, you know, in the surrounding cityscape, kind of displays the building as an object uh, and makes it more monumental and more special. But that could also make the building aloof from the street in a way 
that's not good. But that doesn't happen at the library because that terrace is designed so that it's this great outdoor public room. It's like an extension of Bryant Park coming around the sides of the library to Fifth Avenue. And the stairs of that terrace are one of the great people places of New York. People love to sit on those stairs. Office workers eat their lunch on those stairs. Tourists take a load off their feet by sitting on those stairs. The terrace does at the same time the job of displaying the building as an object, but also integrating the building into the life of the streets surrounding it. That is a very unusual thing and a rare thing for a building to pull off, and yet the library does it, I would say, perfectly. Well, as you pointed out, your book really, really explains it. I appreciated being schooled in the terminology used in classical architecture, and I think going there now, I will have a newfound appreciation for what I'm seeing when I walk into that library. Great. Francis, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Francis Moroni is an art and architecture critic and the co-author of the New York Public Library, The Architecture and Decoration of the Stephen A. Schwarzman Building. It's out now from Norton. It's an old cliche, but one we think bears repeating for the purposes of this morning's show. The New York Public Library offers New Yorkers a chance to read between the lions. The lions, of course, referring to patience and fortitude, the marble cats that stand guard outside the library's main branch on Fifth Avenue. I learned all about the larger-than-life lions from Clayton Kirking, the New York Public Library's Chief of Art and Information Services. Right now we're in front of the 42nd and 5th Street, uh, 5th Avenue building of the New York Public Library, standing next to Patience, who is the southernmost lion in front of the, uh, in front of the portico of the library. I'm glad that you named Patience here because I couldn't tell the difference. Which one was Patience and which one was Fortitude? They look so alike. Well, you have to know which is north and south, actually. And the names were applied, some say, by uh, the mayor, uh, uh, LaGuardia, in the 30s, at a time of the great, during the Great Depression when he thought the, 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 the citizens of the city needed patience and fortitude. And whether or not that's true, it kind of has stuck. And uh, so the southernmost line is patience, and the one to the north is fortitude. And how appropriate today. New Yorkers, of course, today in this economic climate need patience and fortitude. They certainly do. And so I think that name is it's here to stay. Patience and fortitude, though, not the original names of these lines. These lines were once called something else, right? The history of the lines is very interesting, that they were, they were not immediately recognized as the great symbols of the library or of the city of New York. Um, and it is early in the history of the library, they were actually called Leo Astor and Leo Lennox, for Astor and Lennox, the two great founders of the public library. And uh, that name stuck until Patience and Fortitude came forth in the 30s or 40s sometime, yeah. Who designed these lions? The original sculptures were by Edward Clark Potter, uh, who was a very uh, well-known sculptor of animals uh, uh, in the uh, late 19th, but early early 20th century. They were actually carved by the Picciarelli brothers, who were six brothers from Italy, who came to the United States in uh, 1888 with their father and founded a, a, a marble carving studio. And they actually carved much of the great public sculpture in the, in the country, including the Lincoln Memorial uh, in Washington, D.C. I understand that their facility was in Mott Haven in the Bronx. That's right. That's exactly right. 
and uh, that they were, they were in the, I think, on 142nd Street. And sadly, after the death of the last brother, there very little was saved of their of their studio over their records. But but the their, the public sculpture is and the, is really a record of what they produced. So just how long have Patience and Fortitude been keeping watch over the New York Public Library? They were installed just before the library opened in uh, May of 1911. There were plaster casts here in place before the opening. And uh, it's interesting that immediately there was all sorts of controversy about the lines, that they were badly drawn, that they were inappropriate to, uh, that there should have been an American beast uh, guarding this uh, edifice instead of, an, instead of uh, uh, something that was associated with Africa and more classically with, with Europeans uh, architecture and architecture decoration. That controversy actually lasted a number of years, but as much as there was controversy about the sculptures, they become, they're very popular among the populace of the city very quickly. They are now trademarked by the library, right? They're also the library's mascot. They're the library's mascot. The library and everything connected to it is a national monument. And uh, these sculptures were, were completely uh, conserved and restored in 2004. Over time, the, the marble had deteriorated somewhat. A couple cracks had occurred because of the freezing and cooling. And marble is, is a very durable material, but it doesn't, over time, do well in with acid rain, air pollution, freezing, cooling, and, and, and tourists crawling all over the sculptures. But they were completely restored, and uh, they're, they're back to basically 1911. Patients and fortitude are made of what's known as Tennessee pink marble, right? Right. Tennessee pink marble, which was chosen for the color and the texture and also durability. And it's a stone that was used because of its dur durability. But when you look at them, they don't look pink. They don't look pink. Um, during the restoration, it was possible to see when they were it's more of the ex in, uh, interior of, the, of some of the areas that were being restored was visible. You could see a, a more pink-like flesh tones. Sometimes in the rain or um, if the light is just right, there really is a pink, more of a blush than a, than a real uh, tone or color. A little trivia here, and I'm not sure if you're aware of the history, but the marble that these lions are made of it's also used on sections of the floor at Grand Central Terminal. I did not know that. Now I do. <laughs> That's, no, and then I'm sure for the same reason, you know, because of, the, because of the durability and the color as well. Clayton, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can check out, get it, check out, show about libraries. Check out our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrew McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend.